Welcome to Dreamland, a program dedicated to an examination of areas in the human experience not easily nor neatly put in a box. Things seen at the edge of vision, awakening a part of the mind as yet not mapped, and yet things every bit as real as the air we breathe but don't see. This is Dreamland. This indeed is Sunday evening, and Dreamland underway once again. Hi, everybody. I'm Art Bell. Great to be here on a Sunday evening. As you know, one of my favorite uh, areas of investigation without question. A little bit of a difference this evening. Uh, Linda Bolton Howe is not with us. Actually, we have no idea where she is. Not in touch. So, in a moment, we'll be going to our main topic with John Ronner way back in Tennessee. And we're going to be talking about angels. Angels are uh, absolutely all the rage, and uh, a remarkable number of people, almost 70% of the American public, believe in angels. Isn't that a shocking stat? About, actually, it's, I believe, 69% uh, believe in angels. And in a moment, John Runner, he knows, he's written about angels. All right. About John Runner. John has been writing for a publication since age 15, when an article of his appeared in a National Astronomy magazine. After receiving his journalism degree in 1973, John worked as a reporter and an editor for newspapers in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama, covering primarily the police and court beats. He repeatedly won awards for his news writing from the Associated Press and other news organizations. Uh, John has written uh, several books on the subject of angels. Uh, I believe his first was, Do You Have a Guardian Angel? His latest is, The Angels of Cokeville. And there have been more and more and more reported uh, encounters across our nation with angels. So let's go find out about it. Here from, I believe, uh, Tennessee. No, wait a minute. Let me put him over here. Here from Tennessee is John Ronner. John, are you there? I sure am, Art. Wonderful. Uh, you are in Tennessee, aren't you? Oh, yes, very much so. Okay. Right in the middle of it, near Nashville. Uh, it's been, what, John, about a year since we've had you on the program? Oh, I think it was about a year ago in April. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um... It's almost hard to know where to start, um, but I guess we could start with the survey. When was that survey taken, uh, John, the one that showed almost 70% of America believes in angels? That was taken in December of 93. Time magazine, as, as some of the uh, listeners may remember, did a cover story back in December of 93 on the phenomenon of angels. Uh, the country was just beginning to wake up to the significance of the subject. Uh, we still uh, had most of the major television network specials lying in the future at that point, but uh, uh, people were beginning to realize that uh, this was a topic worth looking at. In that particular survey, the 69% raised a lot of eyebrows that uh, that, that largest slice of the population believed in the existence of angels. But uh, uh, also in that survey, 46% uh, of, the, of the respondents, and this was a scientific poll, of course, that could be uh, uh, extrapolated out to the whole population, 46%, almost half, uh, felt that they had a personal spiritual guardian. So you're talking about, well, my goodness, I mean, 40% of the American population, we got 260 million people in this country, so that's over 100 million there. And um, uh, 
uh, just over 30% felt that they had had interactions uh, with this guardian spirit, whatever it was. Now, well, in other words, a, a close encounter with an angel of the third kind. Yeah, and, and of course, unfortunately, the poll didn't go into detail as to what kind of encounter that was, but other polls have, and they range from seeing a luminous being, you might think of that as the angel in its native glory appearing, hearing a voice coming out of thin air, warning you at, a, at an important moment to do something or just comforting you, uh, having an overpowering hunch to do something that seems against all logic at the moment, but later is the right thing to do, uh, physical intervention, hearing celestial music, uh, uh, incredible coincidences that some people feel were made in heaven. There's an entire old category of stories in which people feel that angels disguise themselves as mortals in order to intervene, and, and the list goes on and on. So uh, we don't know exactly how that breaks down from that poll, but other polls give us a, a clue. There's a lot going on. Why don't there. we begin with what is a very, very, going to be a very hard question, but very important. All right. What's an angel? Uh, well, actually, there is a strict definition that comes down to us from the medieval philosophers, and, and of course, this is this was their opinion. Uh, the, the philosophers felt that uh, an angel is a superior spiritual being, and I guess for best results, we probably should just break that down. Superior, we're talking about something above us on the evolutionary scale. Of course, in, in medieval philosophy, evolution was not a concept yet, uh, so to them it would be something it, it, they would probably have said higher in the cosmic order. Okay, right? so I, I want to be very clear. I want to be very clear. This is not a former human spirit. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up because there's a lot of confusion about that. In the strict definition, you're talking about a non-human superior being, a completely a higher uh, order of being. And you're talking about something in spirit form, um, not flesh. So, uh, as I said, there are there is a case in which people feel that angels sometimes temporarily take on human form, disguise themselves as mortals in order to intervene, but that's a special right. case category. So according to the strict according to the strict definition, an angel is a superior spiritual being. However, the term angel, um, when you get out there in, in the real world and, and start asking people um, about their guardian angel, quote unquote, they'll come back uh, with with a lot of different types of experiences and experiences with dead loved ones often get lumped into this into into this uh, angel encounter exactly. uh, subject matter so that they may say hey john let me tell you about my guardian angel and i start listening to the story and it turns out they're talking about uh, a departed loved one that is looking after them they feel uh, but although strictly speaking that's not an angel if, if you want to approach it loosely you could say that, that that might be a de facto guardian angel if not a de jure guardian angel not a not one according to strict definition here's something that might interest you um, I of course interview a number of people experts in the field of UFOs and uh, so forth and so yeah. on and um, a couple of them that I've interviewed recently John have suddenly inexplicably begun to talk about angels yeah and I I, I kinda wonder if um, there's beginning to be a crossover uh, in the field well, now, there's always been kind of a, a linkage there I al often get asked about that uh, some um, um, parapsychological observers I guess for want of a better term have right. have constructed the term EHE exceptional human experience as kind of a blanket term to cover all sorts of paranormal experiences everything from angel encounters to uh, UFO contactee cases and so on uh, what they're I think what they're trying to get at is that um, the, um, the, the the spiritual reality that is larger than our our, our physical world 
uh, encompasses a lot of possibilities out there. And uh, it, as you said at the beginning of your program, it's not always easy to wrap all this stuff up into neat little packages. Sometimes there's a crossover. Well, what about the perception of the person having the experience? In other words, if we have a fairly heavily religious person who has an experience with an entity, yeah. uh, are they not likely to, in their own mind, say, this is angelic or this is from God? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, obviously, versus somebody, uh, maybe even a UFO buff, who will see something and say, aha, an E.T., it's perfectly human to frame experience in, 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 in one's own frame of reference. I mean, in, in the near-death experience, for example, uh, uh, religious figures are often viewed, and, and uh, especially, especially when the being of light, this superior spiritual being that is very much angel-like, it's overwhelmingly loving, profoundly wise, it can appear uh, at the time of, say, a life review, uh, right. where you see every tiny action of your life played out in front of you uh, uh, for purposes of moral or spiritual evaluation. And uh, a person may come back having experienced this, this awesome being of light as a superior spiritual being, and they may put, it, they, they put labels on it according to their own beliefs. They may say, well, I saw Jesus, I saw God. Or they may just say, I saw an angel. If they're a secular person, they may say, I saw a being of light. Uh, Hindus who have had near-death experiences have often reported that they saw Yama, the, the judge of the dead, and yes. so on. So the labels may vary. But the thing that's interesting is, at least uh, with the appearance of the luminous being that as a component of the near-death experience, they very often report, uh, they, they seem to be describing the same thing, which is kind of intriguing. Intriguing and comforting, in a way. Yeah, well, you know, when I, I mean, when I... every everybody's searching for some sort of proof that there is a life that extends beyond this one. And by the way, in all the studies you've done, John, uh -huh. how sure are you that there is a life after this one? Oh, that's a great question. I, I would say this personally. I'm convinced of it. I don't want to sound like a true believer. I don't want to sound like an ideologue because I'm none of those things. In, in fact, I'm opposed to being. That sort of thing. I'm not a fundamentalist in any stretch of the by any stretch of the imagination, whether whether in the religious or the non-religious realms. Mm -hmm. But I personally, yes, am convinced. I've seen enough to satisfy myself. I don't. I would agree with the skeptics out there that that there is no scientific proof that a spiritual realm exists in the sense that we we we've shown it beyond a reasonable doubt, as the lawyers like to say. But I would feel that again, to use a legal term, there is a preponderance of the evidence in favor of a spiritual realm, and that anyone who takes a little bit of time to investigate it on his own will, I think, come to the same conclusion. Uh, um, what we have out there is not proof, but but circumstantial evidence. And you know, there's a difference between proof and evidence. We don't have, in other words, we don't have a smoking gun. No All right. If I were to ask you, telltale signs. Right. If I were to ask you for a guess and say, John, do you think? If proof ever comes, it will come uh, in the scientific area or it will come from an exploration of our own mind, in other words, some turn uh, inward. Mm -hmm. um, or may we, we just may simply never, ever prove it one way or the other. Yeah, that's possible. I think that, that if proof comes, it could come either way. And, and there's, there are indications that, um, that it is coming both ways. I mean, there are developments, developments in science itself that are seriously undermining the materialist philosophy, the idea that the physical is all there is. And, and by the way, I call it a philosophy. I didn't call it a science. Yes, sir. This idea that the physical is all there is, the skeptics often get that confused with science. It has nothing to do with science. It's, a, it's sort of a religion that has attached itself to science over the last two centuries. Um, 
what I'm referring to when I say scientific developments, I'm talking about things like quantum physics, that branch of physics that deals with dimensions smaller than the atoms. It's shown us that the external universe out there needs, in a sense, needs our consciousness to be real. Those subatomic particles are not discrete little BBs that are independent of us. If we don't, if a scientist doesn't observe them, they literally have no existence. And, right. and while this may seem strange and bizarre to somebody not familiar with this, there's no dispute about it among physicists. We have to look at them in order for them to be real. And depending on how we look at them, they can change their nature. If we look at a, a photon, if, if a scientist conducts a certain type of, of observational experiment on a photon, looks at it one way, to put it in plain English, it, it will act like a little particle. Einstein did that at the early part of the century. Right. If another scientist looks at it a completely different way, it'll act like a light wave. And if, the, and if it's not looked at, it has no existence in, in and of itself. This, has been, this is quite shocking. And Niels Bohr, the great uh, mind uh, in physics in the 20th century, he had this in mind when he said that anyone who was not shocked by what quantum physics has to say about the world has not understood it. And this, this one little development here has shaken materialism at, at, its, at its root. And you've got the Gaia hypothesis, which uh, indicates that uh, some sort of planetary intelligence may be, in effect, uh, uh, guiding and, and uh, uh, causing the systems of the Earth to interact with one another to maintain conditions suitable for life. You've got the anthropic uh, principle coming out of astrophysics, which suggests that we appear to be living in a designer universe suitable for human life against incredible odds. And any one of these things we can go into later if there's more time. Oh, there's time. Uh, all right, fine. Radio well, has a luxury of time. Let me uh, okay. hold you right there for just a moment, take care of a little bit of business. My guest is John Ronner, and uh, John will be back in just a moment. North and back now to John Ronner. John. Um, John, the, I, I'm not sure how to approach this. There is something that I call the quickening. Maybe it's real, maybe it's not. I've done, you know, I've been doing talk radio for about ten years now. Have you? And I have never, this show, as a matter of fact, for ten years. Oh, really? Broadcasting for more like 30. But in the last two or three years, I've begun to notice what I call a quickening of events. More earthquakes. Uh, more bad weather. Uh, more wars in scattered places more of just about everything you can name uh... political events social upheaval all of it everything that's going on seems to be accelerating and i so i just call it the quickening uh... Yeah. it's just you know a word but i wonder if it might fit into those who would uh... somehow or another end up helping us end up what Helping us? Helping us. A angels? Angels? Yeah. I think, uh, well, what came to my mind when you were talking about that was the fact that I think that our world is in flux, and we, we clearly see signs of that. I think even the materialists would concede that. You've got a technological revolution. We've gone from Kitty Hawk to Voyager in about 70 or 80 years. Exactly. To me, mankind is in, or humankind, is in a stormy adolescence right now. We've had a long childhood stretching out for thousands, even, you might argue, hundreds of thousands of years. We were in a stormy adolescence, and I think we're headed toward a more mellow adulthood shortly, and we shouldn't, <laughs> we shouldn't be too discouraged by the... I, I think Shakti Gawain pointed out that, uh, you know, you can, look at, you can look at all this turbulence um, one way. You can be distressed by it and say, oh, this is terrible, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and that's the usual way that, that people look at it. Sure. Or you can take the positive look and, and say that, well, we're kind of, we're kind of working out our problems, and, and you don't do that uh, without um, a, a little bit of uh, dislocation. Uh, 
as far as uh, angels, the way to relate angels to this, I would say that one of the ways that our society is in tremendous flux is that materialism is a philosophy. This idea that the physical is all there is is rapidly fading as as the major, uh, the the dominant uh, belief of the intellectual elite of our culture. They're they're rapidly shedding this for reasons we just went into in the last segment. Um, a lot of um, people are coming around to the idea that, well. Just take a look at the climate today. Uh, couldn't, couldn't, toward, it also, toward, couldn't it also, John, have a lot to do with the graying of America now? As yes, you, yes. As yes. you get older, uh, you tend to realize your own mortality more, and so you think about it more. And, and I think there's a tendency for most of us who develop normally to become more spiritual as we get older. The process is called maturing. Um, I think this is happening in the culture at large. I think the intellectual elite is changing its mind about the basic nature of reality, and I think you see signs of this change of mind. You see it in the media, for example. Uh, last year, we had a whole raft of specials on angel encounters in, which, right. uh, in which the spiritual and the metaphysical is given the best. I, I would say that the spiritual, spiritual and metaphysical subjects are getting the best press today than they, than they ever have in my lifetime, and I, I, can, I have a clear memory going back to the early 60s. And I can remember in the 60s as a, you know, as a teenager sitting on my, on the front porch of my duplex in, in Alabama, you know, reading the newspapers or whatever. Uh, if anybody dared to express a metaphysical experience, heaven mm -hmm. help them, you know, because oh. they were immediately surrounded by an, they were immediately followed in the, in the print report or the, or the broadcast by an expert saying they had seen the planet <laughs> Venus or the, <laughs> oh, John, <laughs> or, uh, I, I, no... I, I could tell you so many stories. John, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold okay. on. We'll be right back to you. Uh, believe me, doing a standard uh, five-hour-per-night talk show on regular subjects during the week and then doing this on the weekend gives everybody in the world an opportunity to take a cheap shot at me. I'm used to it. We'll be right back. Hour of Art Bell was recorded for rebroadcast at this time. Please do not call. From the Kingdom of Nye, we continue with your calls on Dreamland with Art Bell. Call Art now, toll free at 1 800 618 8255. 1 800 618 TALK. First time callers, area code 702 727 1222. 702 727 1222. Or the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295. 727-1295 in the 702 area code. Now again, here's Art Bell. Now again, here I am. Hi, everybody. Back to John Ronner in just one moment. Three. And, uh, John, we're back on again. As I was saying, I've done this for ten years, John, and I find that... Um, um, I'm going to continue to examine the kinds of areas that I have been for years now with shows like this one because I think whether it's extraterrestrial visitors and, and the question is whether there is life elsewhere, which to me has always seemed probable, uh, or we're talking about life after death, these are probably two of the most important questions uh, mankind strives for as long as he is alive to answer. I mean, they really are, and so I'll keep examining them. And I'm sure that you've had plenty of people come after you, too, in your time, kind of chuckling and laughing, and, uh, and you know, it's an easy, cheap shot. 
Well, the uh, the existential questions are always going to be with us, and, and we've really got a choice of universes here. If the materialists are right, then we live in a meaningless, accidental universe, and all of our spiritual lessons, which we have learned at, at great cost over over the, our lifespans, are for naught. It makes no difference at all. That's right. Uh, if they're right, uh, then the universe is essentially meaningless. Now, I know the existentialists, they argue that, that you know, you can still put your own meaning into life, and that's, that's true up to a point, but to me, it's small potatoes it's thin gruel to compensate me for the fact that my whole universe is meaningless and uh, it also you know i want to get back to what we were talking about a while ago there you know the heartening thing about this is there there is some circumstantial evidence out there to suggest that a spiritual realm actually exists you don't have to be credulous you don't have to be empty-headed as as some skeptics often suggest in order to believe in all of this let's take the near-death experience for example this is one of the things that impressed me so much as a young man i couldn't uh... one of the one of the first things i noticed during all of the hoopla about the near-death experience in the mid-1970s which caught us all by surprise very few of us at that time had ever heard of it i certainly hadn't you, you, you. Of course, you have the original. You have the initial stage of the out-of-body experience, and then the journey through the tunnel, uh, which is kind of like a halfway zone between the physical plane and, and the spiritual realm. Then the uh, the person having the near-death experience emerges into the world of light. There, there, they interact with uh, departed loved ones who preceded them in death. And sometimes this this uh, superior being of light, this angel-like being of light that we talked about earlier, which sometimes is described as angelic, sometimes as a divine figure. Uh, you have the life review where you see every tiny action of your life uh, in all of its many uh, small details, almost like a morality play, a theater in the round, completely surrounding you in technicolor. You're right in the middle of it. For many and of us, that is a terrifying prospect. It can be terrifying. It can be exhilarating. It can be a combination of both uh, because you suddenly, for the first time, uh, get into the heads and the hearts of everybody around you and you see the implications of everything you've done, good and bad. And, and of course, the people who have had this life review experience have often come back saying that the one thing that struck them the most about it was that all of the, all of the things that we consider so important and so big tend to be very trivial and unimportant during the life review when you're looking at it from a higher consciousness. And, and, and some of the things that were seemingly trivial, like a little act of kindness or, or, you know, a kind word to somebody yes. you need, suddenly take on tremendous proportions, uh, in the life review. It's almost like your priorities are turned upside down. And uh, to get back to what I was going to say, though, is uh, we're familiar with some of the stages of the near-death experience, and, and evidentially what impresses me about it is that somebody can be lying flat on their back for 15 to 20 minutes with no vital signs, clinically dead, the brain's mm-hmm. not working, the electroencephalograph is flatlining, and all of a sudden they come back and they say, you know, the story is, well, you know, I was floating around the room, I was looking down on all of this, I, you know, I, I saw the doctor over there doing this, the nurse was crying because I was the same age she was, that's what she was thinking, she didn't say that, and it goes on into 101 different details about what happened while the person was clinically dead, while he had no vital signs, and sometimes they even passed through walls moving into other rooms. My question is this. I've heard the standard explanations from the materialists. Okay, your brain is flooded with feel-good neurochemicals like serotonin and, and endorphins and whatnot. That's right, yes. To try to ease your transition into oblivion because your body wants to resist the idea that it's all over. Right. I've heard, uh, you know, the, the problem with all of these explanations is they're non-explanations. And they, then don't forget None of them the, explain where you get this knowledge from. Don't forget the brain cells dying from the outside moving inward. Uh, accounting for what some doctors say is this center core of light. Uh, oh, yeah. Right? They've come up with that one for the light. Well, all of these theories sound good on paper, so to speak, but if you look a little bit deeper, they don't explain where this knowledge comes from. Um, and 
experiments have actually been conducted uh, in this effect, to this effect. Uh, Michael Saberman, Atlanta cardiologist. Well, let, let me let me back up just a couple of steps. The skeptics have said have been confronted with the fact that these people have all of this knowledge about about what went on while they were clinically dead. And, and I want to emphasize this again at the risk of beating a dead horse, that while the brain is not working according to the EEG. Yes. Um, where do they get this knowledge from? And also, where do they get this perspective from? Because very often they describe looking down on it all from a corner, you know, an upper corner of the, of the room. And they could not have had that perspective if they were lying flat on their back on a hospital bed hallucinating the whole thing. So the skeptics have come back and said, well, they're just good guessers, you know, they're old in the hospital, they've been through the routine, and they kind of know what's going to happen anyway. Michael Sabum, Atlanta cardiologist, was one of the researchers who followed Raymond Moody. You know, Raymond Moody came out with his book uh, on the near-death experience in the mid-1970s and and woke the whole country up to the near-death experience. But but Moody was not actually doing scientific research. He was just collecting anecdotes, and he put it all together into the different stages of the near-death experience so that people would have a handle on what was going on. And he was followed by researchers like Sabum and Kenneth Ring, the Connecticut psychologist, and uh, uh, Bruce Grayson and so on who did scientific research. Now, Sabum addressed the good guesser theory, okay, the idea that they're just good guessers, they're old hands in the hospital. That's how come they know what's going on. <laughs> he got himself two groups, a control group and experimental group. Control group uh, had no recollection whatsoever while they were clinically dead of anything that went on, no recollection of an NDE. The experimental group claimed to have been out of body watching the whole thing. Both groups were given questionnaires to fill out uh, before they had a chance to be briefed, right. you know, after they were resuscitated, uh, to describe what had happened. And, of course, uh, you know, um, the experimental group that claimed to have witnessed all of this stuff out of body was uh, largely successful in describing what had happened. And the uh, the control group that had no recollection, well, they, they, they fumbled miserably. They couldn't begin mm. to describe what had happened. So, so I, you know, we're back to what we said earlier. There's no scientific proof for any of this, but there's a lot of tantalizing telltale signs that something's really going on out All right, there. I, I've I want, seen enough. Let me ask you, stop and ask you a question. I don't know whether you happen to catch the 60 Minutes episode or not. It was on a few weeks ago. No, I missed it, but tell me about it. I'd like to hear this. Okay, well... Uh, it covered an op. Uh, this poor lady had a brain aneurysm, a big one. Uh, in other words, a big uh, bulbous uh, uh, expansion of uh, you know a blood vessel or whatever in her brain. Yeah. And there was no way to operate on this lady other than to literally kill her. Now they reduced her body temperature. Wow. Way down. They drained all of the blood from her <clears throat> body which, of course, allowed them, you know, the aneurysm uh, at that point, without blood pressure, Mm -hmm. um, shriveled, and they were able to operate on it, excise it, and everything. But but in the process of doing this, it was the only way it could be done. Otherwise, they would have killed her. They lowered her body temperature. Uh, She went flat, all the way flat, no brain waves, nothing, for the better part of an hour. An hour, I say. Mm -hmm. They heated her blood... And as they put the blood back in her body, John, she uh, she revived. They didn't have to do anything, no electric shock, nothing. As they put the warmed blood back in, back comes the lady. Now, um, this is actually, uh, though rare, a fairly common procedure. Where, John, did that lady go? Well, that's the question. That that's the philosophical question. Yeah, I mean, uh, it sure is. I I. Uh, uh, my my feeling, my opinion, is that uh, 
it's entirely possible that people do experience the phases of the near-death experience but may not have any conscious recollection of it once they come back and that uh, some do and some don't recall it. I mean, I can't prove that, but uh, it would seem more logical to me that, that everyone has a near-death experience when they're out. There was one other 60... I'll stay with this for a second. Um, it, it covers what you just talked about. It was an operating room, and, you know, frequently uh, they would have these NDEs that would occur, and the doctors would be told about it. And so they took uh, a little um, a neon sign and put it up on top of some equipment uh, in the operating room where nobody would be able to see it except somebody who was out of body who was out of body oh, on the ceiling yes and uh, nobody to date john has come back and revealed what that sign says uh -huh. yeah. on, on the other hand if you were out of body and you were looking down it, it in all probability the sign is the last thing you'd read yeah it's hard to say i mean there are there are instances where uh, uh, people have reported uh, objects out of sight, so I'm not. I don't know. Uh, I, I would say that the the neon sign definitively disproves the near death experience. I mean, there was a case in which uh, one of Moody's cases in which uh, somebody came back and and had allegedly been on an out of body flight and uh, had gone out. I, I think he was hovering outside the uh, one of the windows of the hospital, many stories up from the ground. He saw a sneaker sitting out on a window ledge. He came back into his body and mentioned it to the medical personnel and they checked and sure enough there was the sneaker wow uh... i interviewed uh, sandy rogers for uh, for one of my books uh, she lives in lebanon illinois and she was popping in and out of her body during life-saving surgery being performed on her after she tried to commit suicide and um, she uh... picked up a lot of information about her relatives in other rooms and so on and uh... so while while the neon sign to date has not been uh, deciphered by anybody, there have been other instances in which people have seen things that were beyond their their range of vision if they were just lying on their on the gurney. I'll stay with this for a second. Um, it it covers what you just talked about. It was an operating room, and you know frequently uh, they would have these NDEs that would occur, and the doctors would be told about it, and so they took uh, a little um, a neon sign and put it up on top of some equipment uh, in the operating room where nobody would be able to see it except somebody who uh, was out of body who was out of body oh, on the ceiling yes and uh, nobody to date john has come back and revealed what that sign says uh -huh. yeah. on, on the other hand if you were out of body and you were looking down it, it in all probability the sign is the last thing you'd read yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, there are, there are instances where uh, uh, people have reported uh, objects out of sight. So I'm not. I don't know. Uh, I, I would say that the the neon sign definitively disproves the near death experience. I mean, there was a case in which uh, one of Moody's cases in which uh, somebody came back and and had allegedly been on an out of body flight and uh, had gone out. I, I think he was hovering outside the. Uh, one of the windows of the hospital many stories up from the ground he saw a sneaker sitting out on the window ledge he came back into his body and mentioned it to the medical personnel and they checked and sure enough there was the sneaker wow uh... i interviewed uh, sandy rogers for uh, for one of my books uh, she lives in lebanon illinois and she was popping in and out of her body during life-saving surgery being performed on her after she tried to commit suicide and um, she uh... picked up a lot of information about her relatives in other rooms and so on and uh... so while while the neon sign to date has not been uh, deciphered by anybody, there have been other instances in which people have seen things that were beyond their, their range of vision if they were just lying on, their, on the gurney.
So uh, you've examined uh, lots and lots and lots of cases uh, of apparent uh, intervention by angels or angelic figures or beings of uh -huh. light. Um, if I were to ask you, which I will in a second, to recount to us in some detail the very best one or the best proof you've ever heard to date, um, I wonder what you would say. And in a moment, we'll find out what he says. We'll be right back. Zero three. All right, back now to John Ronner, subject angels. John, what would you say is the best case? Well, I tried to uh, list a few candidates here. I I took this this uh, particular story for the the new book. Uh, in fact, I'm, I titled the book "The Angels of Cokeville After this, Cokeville is a small town in uh, Wyoming, a ranching community. Now, mm -hmm. back in 1986. Uh, uh, a psychotic genius by the name of David Gary Young. He had an IQ of about 180. Uh, yeah. To give you an idea of what we're talking about here in terms of intellect, an IQ of 130 is 1 in 100, an IQ of 140 is 1 in 1,000. And Young had an IQ of 180, but unfortunately he was a warped genius. Uh, he built a bomb that took up an entire shopping cart, rolled it into an elementary school in Cokeville, and took the entire school hostage, so about 150 kids plus uh, about 10 or 15 adults. My goodness. And he said he wanted a rap session with Reagan. He wanted two million per hostage. Um, and uh, but his, his an examination of his diaries after the incident revealed that he he secretly intended, no matter what happened, to take the ransom and blow all the kids up, including himself. He had this crazy idea that he was going to reincarnate in a new dimension called the Brave New World, and he'd be like a resurrected Pharaoh. You know. Story. As a crane operator, I got into a situation where my crane would have tipped over if a dangerous situation was not brought to my attention. My crane had an extreme load on the hook, and one of my outriggers was sinking into the pavement. When an outrigger loses its stability, the crane tips over and can cause loss of life or at the very least damage to property. In this case, four men could have lost their lives. I noticed nothing wrong since my crane was swinging the heavy load to the men. Somebody, now listen to this, somebody wearing carpenter whites and no hard hat, he's got that underline, no hard hat, called my name, pointed to the ground and said, you're outrigger. I saw that my crane was about to go. And I was very busy swinging the heavy load away from the lives in jeopardy and was able to keep it from tipping. Later, I tried to find the man that saved the crane and those guys' lives. I couldn't find him. I described him to the other guys. They didn't know him. He was dressed as a carpenter, and the level of the building he was on had only laborers. He had no hard hat on. That would have meant immediate termination. I later thought about it. Now, I believe an angel was sent to save these men's lives. Again, from an anonymous author and location. That was for you, John. What do you think? Oh, I think it's a classic story. I really appreciate the fact that he took the time to send it in. It's a, this is a, this is an example of the angel in disguise, or what, what many people feel would be the angel in disguise, and certainly that's the, the facts the man who facts that, that's his opinion. Uh, in, in this kind of category of experience, 
the angel looks like a human being, acts like a human being, but there are so many uncanny little details surrounding the incident that by the time it's over, as in the case with this crane operator, the person is convinced that this could not have been a human being after all, despite the fact that it, it, it looked to be that way. Um, Wouldn't it almost be necessary uh, on occasion they would disguise themselves in a form that we would understand so as not to totally throw the person off? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot to touch on that. Right, the uh, uh, the what we what uh, the the crane operator feels was an angel in this case disguised himself as a carpenter in whites, and yet there was no hard hat on his head. And oftentimes there are anom anomalous little things like this. Uh, in a typical um, angel in disguise story, you uh, you might find yourself uh, broken down on a deserted road. The helper uh, tends to appear out of nowhere at a critical moment. You didn't notice him coming, and then disappear again at another critical moment. You, uh, when your attention is diverted, once the once the assistance is is rendered. Another little key feature of this, which happened in this incident, is that other people never see the helper. Just the person who needs to see him. Um, huh. It's uh, uh, it's it's a widespread. Um, it, it's reported on a widespread level there, and it's uh, the skeptics have a hard time with this one, but uh, it's it's. It's pretty common out there, and it's. I guess to get a handle on this, it's very. Much, it reminds me of the old TV series Highway to Heaven, with the late actor Michael Landon playing the angel Jonathan Smith, who looked like a human being, but right. uh, tended to hang back and let people solve their own problems. He would be the catalyst for change, but not, would not take uh, drastic action himself. All right, here's another fact. This might be a skeptic from Honolulu. Okay, jo uh, Jeffrey. He says, "Our right, John said that we have to look at quote them end quote to be real." I don't see you on the radio, and yet I believe you are real. If angels are so real, why hide? I'd, I would like to get some help. I need help, and they hide from me. That's from Jeffrey. That's a good point. I, I want to point out, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into that, one of the things that, that we, we have a danger of, of losing sight of when we talk about these spectacular experiences is that there's some kind of spiritual elite out there having all the experiences and the rest of us are just kind of sitting on our hands, looking around, waiting for something to happen. I don't think that's the case. I think every, we're all surrounded by, this, by spiritual forces. We're immersed in it and, and we are touched by the heavenly and by the uh, angelic. Uh, the challenge for us is just to pay more attention to what's happening to all of us. I think yeah. we're all affected by it. I don't think Jeffrey's left out or I am left out or anybody else. My sister is a, is, uh, has had lots of dramatic experiences over the years, and I've had relatively few, and those that I've had have been subtle. Uh, but I, uh, I consider myself uh, a part of all this also. We're not sitting on the bleachers. We're all in the playing field. And the more you pay attention to this phenomenon, the more it uh, comes into your life. I think, first of all, we're all affected uh, by meaningful coincidence or synchronicity, that's probably the most common way that uh, the other side touches us in our day-to-day -day life. You know, uh, is, uh, is William what, Temple said, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I cease to pray, they stop happening. And people who have kept diaries of synchronicities in their life have noticed that they have increased in frequency and in intensity. And uh, What were you going to say, Art? Well, I was going to say, is what we, uh, what I would generally call intuition or a very strong intuitive feeling that if I do this, I'm a dead duck. That's another good example. Yeah. Is that an example? I think I think intuition, uh, the hunches that we have, are another are another very very common way that we are all affected by this phenomenon. Uh, um, uh, probably the most dramatic example of, of, of a hunch type of experience uh, that comes to my mind immediately was a, a lady in Wisconsin who let's see how did that go? Her two sons were out on a joyride. 
and all of a sudden uh, she was seized with this uh, horrible feeling of dread that they were in mortal danger and, and without really understanding why she found herself bursting into tears she flopped on her bed and started crying and praying for their lives she had no logical reason to do any of this short time later the two boys come in their faces are pale and the story is that uh, their car had been surrounded their car had stalled on a street and was surrounded by an armed hostile gang armed with baseball bats and guns banging on the windows of the station wagon with full a full force pounding of baseball bats on these windows for two minutes uh, one kid was in the back seat with his head right close to the window just inside of course and as he happened to kind of uh, glance outward he saw the head of a baseball bat come come down with full force on the outside of that window and it hit the window the window didn't crack the window didn't spider but the baseball bat cracked in two when it hit the window something the kids felt was keeping the windows from cracking or spidering or even shattering protecting now we can argue you know we can argue back and forth about uh, you know gee maybe that's a little far-fetched john uh, are you trying to say that the angels turned that car into an armored presidential limousine well you know we can't prove that that happened but we do know that their mother uh, on some level was was keenly aware of the danger that they were in and prayed for them and perhaps that prayer had an effect on on saving their lives eventually they got the car started and they got out of there got away from the gang hey john have you heard any stories about angelic appearances uh... with reference to the big explosion in oklahoma city well you know what um I heard, I, I caught just a passing reference uh, in, in just a, a garden variety news report. You know, there was so much mega information coming out of there. Somebody, was, uh, somebody had mentioned an individual who uh, claimed that an angel had led him out of the wreckage uh, through some kind of card or whatever. I don't really? know if anybody else out there in, in Radio Land heard the same account. I was intrigued by that. I've had people ask me whether or not uh, I thought that, that a lot of spiritual experiences occurred uh, in that disaster and all I can say is well I have no way of knowing but usually in times of, of great disaster uh, all sorts of paranormal activity occur uh, if nothing else a lot of people are aware on a subconscious level of the disaster uh, uh, and and uh, steer clear of it uh, uh, David Booth Cincinnati office worker had uh, terrible nightmares ten nights in a row this is back in the mid 80s and uh, we see how that went he uh, after three or four nights of this, well, what he would dream is he dreamed that he saw uh, an American Airlines, uh, let's see, uh, trying to, uh, it was a, it was a DC, American Airlines DC-10. He saw that much in his dream, a jumbo jet mm-hmm. taken off in a slow ascent from an airport, and then he watched uh, an engine break off from the wing. Then he saw the plane flip over and come upside down back to the ground. It was Boy. a huge orange fireball, and he'd wake up crying. If this happened two or three nights in a row, he couldn't stand it any longer. He got the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration. And they didn't treat him like a nut. They took him seriously. And they interviewed him, trying to figure out what in the world, you know, where was this flight? What, uh, when is it happening? Right, sure. And unfortunately, this, you know, this is, these visions are right brain phenomenon, phenomena. The intuition comes in through the right side of our brain and doesn't give us a lot of facts, figures, and details. He had, he had a lot of, uh, of visual detail, but not a lot of numbers and names to put on it. He didn't know it was American Airlines and he didn't know it was a DC-10. Anyway, American Airlines had too many flights. It just couldn't pinpoint it. So the nightmares went on 10 nights in a row on the 10th night. Uh, Booth had his last nightmare. The next day, Lindsay Wagner, the actress, and her mother were about to get on board American Airlines Flight 191, taken off from uh, Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Right. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, Ms. Wagner, was, who was known for her intuition, was seized with this overpowering feeling that she should not get on this flight. And uh, she 
you know, for for reasons she couldn't explain, but she trusted her intuition. She just walked away from the plane with her mother. A few minutes later, uh, this flight 191 took off, and an engine broke off. The plane flipped over, came down, inverted. Uh, orange fireball went up, uh, uh, just exactly as Booth had seen it in the dream. And uh, unfortunately, uh, all 273 passengers on board were killed. It was the worst aviation disaster in North America up to that point. That's incredible. And Lindsay yeah. Wagner walked away from that? She walked away from it. And, and I, uh, to get back to what you were saying, though, originally, and what I was saying, I, I feel we're all affected by this phenomenon. Uh, most of, with most of us, it's a subtle thing. Well, that's and, a... Okay, let me stop you, John. That's yeah. the problem. I'm a, I'm a kind of a halfway white-knuckle flyer, you know? Oh, really? <laughs> I, yeah, in other words, when I get on a plane... Uh-huh. And I think this is most people. It occurs to you, this thing could crash. You know, anytime you fly, what goes up could come down. And, and you could end you up like Apollo it. 13 out there yeah, halfway to the right. moon and nowhere yeah. to go. Yeah, well, that's, that's more or less right. And so I always worry about it, and I have a sort of thought, and I try to trust my intuition, and I always go those little flicks, and you're never really sure. In other words, oh, it should be, before you walk away from that flight, <laughs> and I've thought about it a few times, it should be a true overpowering feeling is that right not just sort of a gentle worry well the people who have a uh, powerful int intuitive uh, experiences will usually report that uh, you know that there's there's no doubt in their mind about it Ex i've had a, one not a vacillating no I, that's right john i've had one i've had one and it came at me like ocean waves so strongly i could not ignore it so it was the only one and it was really strong. I've got another fax for you in just a moment. John Ronner is my guest. He'll be right back. Zero. All right, we're going to get to calls shortly, but uh, this is from Diane in Southern California. Dear Art and John, in the fall of 1983, after my father and brother died, I had my first experience with a guardian angel, Flora. So this one has a name. During the hour and a half she spent with me, I got a lot of questions answered. I no longer need scientific proof of angels, as the many things Flora told me proved out true over the next few months. The one question, though, I did not ask her is the one I would like to ask John tonight. Here it is. Are those little flashes of astral-like blue-white light that one sees sometimes an indication that an angel is near? John? I think I know what Diane's talking about. If I understand that correctly, uh, uh, it can either... I've seen instances where those were taken to be an indication of the presence of a departed loved one or a superior spiritual being uh, and, and possibly something else, but usually one, one or the other. Huh. Uh, I've, and, I've heard people talk of blue-white flashes. Mm -hmm. Or speckled light or uh, sometimes balls of light and so on that, that will appear. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's one way the other side can make its presence known. Uh, usually, uh, usually when somebody encounters uh, 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 an angel as a superior being, they'll, they, they, they'll see kind of a, well, they may see a shimmering column of rainbow light. They may see uh, balls of light. They may see a, a human form against a, a kind of a very bright uh, halo. Um, it can take a lot of different forms. Do you believe in ghosts, John? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, as a matter of fact, I thought I was beginning to think that was what Diane was leading up to when you first started. Uh, and it's an important uh, it's an important topic to be discussed within the larger context of angels, because a lot of people out there feel that departed loved ones look after them. As I said earlier in the program, like de facto angels, the term guardian angel gets used, even though technically speaking, we're talking about a guardian spirit because, you know, a ghost would not be a higher order of being. It would simply be a human being who had died. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, continues to be essentially human just in another dimension um, usually um, the contact between the living and the dead is very fleeting it's momentary it occurs around the moment of death it's usually a chance for people who have been suddenly separated to take care of uh, unresolved affairs uh, you know maybe the husband tell the wife gee I'm sorry I never told you I loved you it's just the way I was raised I, I, I couldn't do any better I'm sorry I want you to know now that I love you and and I'll see you again sometime goodbye uh, it's also a chance, these moment of death contacts are also a chance for us to uh, answer for our loved ones the, the two great questions. Uh, you know, does life go on after yes. death, which, which addresses the fear of oblivion. That's one of the two great fears in our culture. And the other fear, of course, is the fear of hellfire. So we get the fear of oblivion from one end of the spectrum, and we get the fear of hellfire from the other end of the spectrum. Hellfire. Let's yeah. Let, let, so, let. you know, the, so in other words, you can, you, the, the person that... The, the dead appear and they say, look, I'm alive. Look at me. Life goes on. There's no oblivion. And also, I'm not in pain. Everything's fine. You don't have to worry about me. And, mm. and I love you. I'll see you again sometime. And that's, usually that's the end of it. Uh, however, in a minority of cases, people feel that a relationship forms and, and continues sometimes indefinitely and sometimes for a few years, sometimes just for a few months after death in which uh, uh, there's repeated contact and, and sometimes a sort of guardianship uh, that, that begins. I spoke with a widow in Florida who felt that her late husband continued to make repairs around the house in the same way he had made them when she was alive. I huh. talked to uh, another lady who uh, felt that her husband rescued her in the middle of traffic one day when a car pulled in front of her and she was she froze up and and was unable to take any evasive action, and her late husband materialized in the car and jerked the wheel uh, so that uh, it went into a ditch and so on. But whatever kind of form it takes, Art, this thing is very common. I mean, uh, 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 what uh, Andrew Greeley, the famous uh, Roman Catholic uh, priest and sociologist, most of us know him through his novels, he asked uh, 1,467 Americans in 73 if they had ever felt that they were in touch with someone who died. And 27% said, well, yeah. So that was one in four saying, yes, they felt they had been in contact with the dead. And among widows and widowers, it was even more startling. Uh, 51% said yes, a majority. That's one in two. And uh, he uh, Greeley went back 10 years later and did the same survey with another scientific, scientifically selected group. And the numbers were even higher. They went up into the 30s overall All right. and into the 60s among widows and widowers. All right, John. Uh, hold it right there. We're at the bottom of the hour. We'll be back. Yes, we're about to begin taking phone calls, so get ready. John Ronner is my guest. The subject, angels. Don't go changing. You're right where you should be. Talk 102. From the kingdom of Nye, we continue with your calls on Dreamland with Art Bell. Call Art now, toll free at 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-TALK. 
first-time callers, area code 702-727-1222, 702-727-1222, or the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295, 727-1295, in the 702 area code. Now again, here's Art Bell. Now again, here I am. Uh, want to add, and we're going to talk about photography in just a moment. It's a very interesting question online. Back now to John Ronner. John, um, you heard me talking about the photograph that we've got. Are there any photographs uh, of angels? Um, there are. I'm, you know, I'm not aware of angels having been photographed per se. Uh, well, sometimes I've, I've run across people who feel that they've seen uh, patterns of angels in clouds and whatnot that they photographed. Uh, I'm sure it's happening. Just because I don't know about it doesn't mean it's not, not happening. No one's ever uh, sent you one. Excuse me? No, Nobody's ever sent you one. No, no, I haven't run across it, but it's probably happening out there. Spirit photography, of course, has a long and, and uh, you know, colorful, checkered history, and I, I, uh, I, I don't dismiss it. I do think that, you know, that overall it's valid. Of course, it's had a lot, there's been a lot of problems with fraud and so on, but still, I think uh, in sum it's, it's a valid uh, thing. All right. Uh, I want to go to the phones, John. Let's take some calls. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Ronner. Where are you calling from, please? Uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks. Well, first I was going to mention... Okay, hon, I can barely hear you. Talk into the okay. phone good and loud for us. Okay, can you hear me? That's better. Okay. Um, first I was going to mention the Alpine the, uh, advertisement that yes. you have. Yes. I have uh, some of the Alpine 150s in my house. Yes. And I was just going to tell the people out there that they really are neat because, like, if you have, like, a little doggy accident or a baby accident or whatever kind of accident and it makes, like, the cat smell or the floor smell, you can just aim that thing right at it. And I know. I've got one. I've got one, too. So, anyway. But any anyway. <laughs> um... Anyway, I was going to ask him, do uh, angels, people that see angels, they, they're not with these um, craft and, and you know, flying saucers and everything like that, are they? Well, well Pete, that's a good question. Uh, in other words, where, where, is, where are all these angel encounters coming from? What types of people are having the experiences? Yes. Uh, I would, that's a really good question. We haven't even touched on it at all tonight. This phenomenon crosses the board. You have people who are traditionally religious, you have people who are secular, you have metaphysically oriented people, all sorts of people uh, having these experiences. And, and, and what has really surprised even me is that this interest in angels and the experience uh, of them is almost becoming a global phenomenon. Um, mm -hmm. One of one of my books, No Angels, was recently translated into uh, Japanese, and I would never have thought that the Japanese would be interested in this, but uh, I, I suppose they have their own Buddhist traditions. Uh, I know that you have the Bodhisattva in Buddhism, which is a mortal who has broken the wheel of karma and yet chooses to remain on earth. It's very much angel-like in order to help others with their evolution. So... Um, it, it is interesting that, uh, that certainly within our neck of the woods, uh, all sorts of people uh, are interested in this phenomenon. All right, this one, another fax. Uh, would you ask your guest, Art, about angelic appearances on the battlefield and the appearance of the war witch in odd moments during combat? Never heard of the war witch. Well, that's an interesting expression. The war witch is probably colloquial just for, uh, you know, any kind of spiritual event that occurs on the battlefield. Oh, yes. Uh, battlefields are places of great stress. And whenever you have a lot of stress, you often have metaphysical experiences because now the skeptics say, well, you have metaphysical experiences in times of stress because the mind's snapping. But I like to think, I suspect, 
that what's really happening is that stress puts the mind into an, spontaneously into an altered state of consciousness, which enables us to perceive other realities that we that our normal waking consciousness doesn't make available to us. Uh-huh. So battlefields are places of great stress, and so you have a lot of experiences. You have there's a there uh, in World War One. Uh, many of the soldiers uh, up and up uh, uh, along the uh, Allied war front were claiming to have seen angels and saints and, and whatnot uh, during an Allied retreat from Mons, Belgium. Uh, that became a very famous uh, series of incidents, and many of the older generations uh, still remember that to this day. Um, closer to our time, uh, Raymond Moody, uh, the near-death researcher, uh, uh, interviewed a gentleman who, uh, during World War II, was being approached by a strafing warplane, and as the bullets, you know, headed straight toward him, kicking up the dust, he was, you know, feeling horrible, a terrible fear, uh, feeling that he would die. And all of a sudden, he he was within the aura of something beyond himself, a very pleasant, calming aura, and he suddenly felt totally at peace and wonderful. And he heard a voice speaking to him out of thin air, and it said, "I'm here with you, Reed. Your time has not yet come." So the battlefield is, a, is because, I think, of the stress factor, is a, is a place where very commonly you have an interface between the physical world and the spiritual world. All right. Let me, before we go to more calls, every line's ringing, but I want to ask this because everybody wants to know. I sure do. You probably won't have an answer. And <laughs> you have all these great stories about people that have been saved by angels. Oh, yeah. I know it's coming. Yeah, sure you do. Uh, but there are so many children in Oklahoma City, children across the nation, innocents, wonderful people, killed, no intervention. They're just killed. Yeah, just like the uh, plane crash we just talked about a while ago. I mean, uh, Lindsey Wagner walked away from the plane, but where were the angels of the other 200 passengers, 200 plus passengers? Yep, that's the question. Uh, that is it. Why do angels go on vacation? You know, uh, why is, is my angel working, but yours is out to lunch? That's you know? good. Yeah. Um, why? There, in, in the book of Acts, you have uh, Stephen is stoned, but a couple of chapters down, Peter is freed by an angel. I think, uh, first of all, as you said, there isn't really no answer to this. It's been asked for thousands of years, and, and uh, I've never come across anybody that had a completely satisfactory answer. I'll throw a few things out, and, and with, with no hope of it really totally satisfying. <laughs> all right. Some people have pointed out, well, first of all, a lot of bad things that happen in this world are of our own making. Let's not start blaming God and angels for World War II. World War II, for example, got started because nationalism ran wild and racial hatred ran wild and infected millions of people. And you ended up with trillions of dollars worth of damage and and millions of lives lost, all man-made. Secondly, people have pointed out that uh, there's a very popular metaphysical theory that uh, we come into this world uh, deliberately with a choice, uh, by choice, that we have our, our life roughly sketched out or mapped Hmm. Um, we have a life plan. We choose to have certain experiences before we incarnate. Now, this is, you know, I'm not saying yay or nay to this theory. I'm just throwing it out for discussion. And that uh, we may choose uh, uh, to experience tragedy, maybe a, a long wasting away from cancer to teach us what it's like to be helpless and to have others love us and, and care for us, or, or vice versa, to, to learn how to care for others who, who we love. Um, some people have argued, uh, Emerson, for example, talked about the law of compensation. The Hindus call it karma. The, uh, uh, the old-timers just say what goes around comes around. This is another idea. This is the idea that what we put out into the world, that the world is our mirror, and what we put out into it is reflected back to us. by uh, in, in Whatever we put out in word or deed comes back to us. Kind of an so, elegant way of saying God's will. 
Yeah, well, it's the idea that we create uh, a lot of the misfortune that comes to us is a reflection of what we have put out into the world. Um, unfortunately, this sometimes degenerates into blaming the victim. So without further ado, let me just wrap it up by saying that there are a lot of theories out there. I don't find any one of them totally satisfactory. Mm. I wouldn't trot them out in front of somebody who had just lost a child or just had some kind of terrible right. tragedy occur to them. I would say this one final thing. A lot of people, when they ask this question, are really asking, why did it happen to me? It's not a broad philosophical question for them. It's just a personal thing. Is God mad at me? Do the angels hate me or whatever? And I just have to say, I can't, from the bottom of my heart, I cannot believe that we live in the kind of universe that would, would, would deliberately visit negative things on people. All right. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Rahner. Hi. Hi. Where, where are you calling from? Uh, San Diego. San Diego. Okay. Yes. Uh, what brought you to studying angels, and what is your belief in a supreme being? Sorry? That's, a, that's a great question. Um, I was I started out as an agnostic. I thought the physical was all there was, that the universe was an accidental machine. I, I guess I was kind of a child of that materialist thinking of the, of the 50s and the 60s, which was so rampant, so strong, the idea that there's a logical, mechanical explanation for everything if you just look slightly beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. But I, as a young man, I began to, to come to the conclusion that that's true if you look superficially at things. There do seem to be mechanical explanations for many things. But if you look deeper, some of those mechanical explanations start falling apart. And we touched on a few things earlier in the program where I think materialism is running into trouble. Uh, the near-death experience flies in the face of the materialist uh, mindset. Developments in science fly in the face of it. Uh, uh, I guess the near-death experience probably had the greatest effect on me in changing my own mind. I, I couldn't understand. I remember, I remember as a young man, I couldn't understand how people with wildly differing ideas about what the afterlife was supposed to be like could be having essentially the same experiences. And this was all in the 1970s, long before there was massive publicity about the near-death experience. Most people were like me. They didn't have a clue about that in the 70s. So there was not any chance of contamination of people, you know, saying, well, I've heard so much about the tunnel, I'm going to talk about the tunnel, or, or I've heard so much about the figure of light, I'll say I experienced that. Sure. So I was very impressed by that. Okay, uh, back to the phones. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Ronner. Hi. Yeah, John. I, hey. I have I have a little experience I'd like to relate to you. Okay. Uh, this happened when I was around 16 years old. Uh-huh. I dropped out of high school, and I was kind of at my wit's end, and this was back uh, quite some time, and this was on the East Coast. And uh, I was going to this store every night that had bay windows and had a big turntable in one of the windows, and had a bunch of guns on there. And... Uh, and I kept eyeing him, and I came to the conclusion that I was going to break the window and steal a gun, and I was going to do some robberies. Yeah. And uh, I came up that night, and I had a brick in my hand, and I raised it up, and I was ready to throw it through the bay window. And those little doors that they have for loading up the showcase, there was a policeman there huh. in full regalia with his hat and his badge on his hat on his chest, his badge, and he was just looking at me. He didn't say anything, he just looked at me. And I dropped the brick and I left. A year later, I went in the military, and I got out of the military. I went back and got my high school. I went and got a degree in engineering. I work in high tech today. Yeah. I've done an awful lot of things that contributed to the science of the world. You've come a long way. And a very cutting edge of technology. And, yeah. and I believe... I didn't realize it at that time. About about a decade later, I realized that uh, that was indeed a possible guardian angel. 
Oh, that's an incredible story. Where, where are you calling from, please? Albuquerque. Thank you. That That's an incredible story. And it was a pivotal time in his life and uh, just turned him around completely. If you want you want to talk about being at a crossroads <laughs> where, the, where, where the road forks and you can go one way or the other, that story certainly exemplifies that, doesn't it? Exactly. Uh, was, was that policeman an angel? It's entirely possible. Uh, well, it certainly had about the same effect. And whether and and it, it could either be the mysterious stranger type incident, it could be a meaningful coincidence, it could have been an actual policeman there, you know, who knows? But certainly his life was changed. <laughs> um, all right, John, hold on. We'll be right back to John Ronner. He's our guest. You know the numbers. Get on the phone. You may think you're a home zero three three. John, are you ready? I'm ready. Here comes somebody else. Okay. West, west of the Rockies, you're on the air. Yes, uh, my friend. Uh... Fellow Gemini. Yes, <laughs> sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, I have a uh, a question, a statement, and a quickie little story. Uh, question is the the Bible for those that read uh, clearly states that God says not to get involved, do not seek, look for, or try to contact spirits or the dead. Uh, All right. It is. How do you respond to that, John? Basically, he's saying the Bible says don't do what you're doing. Well, I think some of the biblical writers were of that opinion, and and but the ancients uh, had had different opinions about that both ways. Uh, um, the contact. First of all, there are some people who are troubled by the idea that that you might want to try to summon the dead. I think Saul got into trouble in the Old Testament for what was it? Uh, going to the witch of Endor to conjure the. Uh, uh, Judge Samuel, and then he was rebuked by Samuel as a result. Um, that uh, uh, that may be as much because Saul defied the. We'll give a quick statement because I know you're limited on time. You're talking about intuitive. Yeah. I've lived led my life that way, and uh, sometimes even take it for granted. It's something that I have seemed to have either learned or acquired early in life. I ride motorcycle, so you you got to be very conscious. But I take it in every form of life activity. I would be on the road, and I think, no, I'm not going to pass this vehicle. No, I'm not going to change lanes. It was just like a mental game or a gut feeling, I guess, for lack of better words. And sure enough, had I have done what most people or you commonly see people do or maybe have done yourself, Yes, there would have been an oncoming obstruction of some form or another in the road. Uh, another uh, quick story here. Uh, I probably shouldn't mention the person's name because they're no longer living to defend what I'm saying, so you just have to take it at face value. This happened many years ago with a famous short man, black entertainer. Got to be quick, sir. And he, uh, we were at a dinner club. A blonde gentleman come up to the table and said, Sir, God loves you. And this uh, person uh, was so moved by it, he did his best to get a hold of the head waiter and the people of the club and said, I want to thank that blonde man for saying that. Yes, sir, we have no blonde waiters. All right, well, uh, we'll hold it there, and I'll extend that. There are all these stories going around, John, about the hitchhiker. Mm -hmm. uh, Gabriel's horn. You've oh, the hitchhiker, the millennialist hitchhiker. Yeah, that's the right. End that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, some of these things are, are categorized as urban legends. In that uh, we, I, I personally have never personally interviewed 
somebody who has experienced that. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, but um, the, the buzz that, that I get is that um, people are having trouble actually pinning down these stories to, to um, um, you know, to find out, to actually get a name of somebody that you can speak with who says they had that type of experience. But I'm not necessarily throwing cold water on it. I just have not personally interviewed anybody myself, nor do I know of anyone who has interviewed somebody personally who has had that story. I have. Have you? I, I've had all right. Oh, oh I've had calls, John. Uh, that's okay. why I asked. All right. East of the... Uh, well, you would have been. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Ronner. Hi. Hello. Hey. This is Nancy in Seattle. Hi. Um... I had a, a couple of questions, one of which was, I hear a lot about angels, and I've never been particularly uh, religious or non-religious. I guess agnostic is where I fall. Mm -hmm. But... This hour of Art Bell was recorded for rebroadcast at this time. Please do not call. Kingdom of Nine. You're hearing Dreamland with Art Bell. To participate in the program, call toll-free 1-800-618-8255. 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers, area code 702-727-1222. Or the wildcard line at 702-727-1295. This is the CBC Radio Network. Yes, it is. And I want to remind people I'm getting faxes asking me the Richard Hoagland program that was on the regular syndicated weeknight show this uh, last Friday night, Saturday morning, uh, may be ordered. You may get a copy of the r latest uh, Richard Hoagland show. A lot of just packed full of new information. Or you can get a copy of the program you're hearing right now. Or any other Dreamland program. Or, one more or, or you can get uh, a subscription to our newsletter, which is $29.95 a year and is now coming out with color photographs, I might add, of our Orient trip in the next issue, if you get it ordered now. The number to call for all of this is 1-800-917-4278. Now, that line's open now or 24 hours a day. Write it down, please. 1-800-917-4278. John, here's one for you. A missionary deep in the South American jungle had been trying for some time to convert a local tribe to Christ. No success. The chief finally had enough of these trespassers and brought a full division of warriors down on the missionary and his family. They spent the night in prayer, ready for deliverance or death. Unexpectedly, the warriors just left without harming them in any way. Later, when on more friendly terms, the missionary asked why he didn't attack. Well, the chief said that he was outnumbered by his army. The missionary was puzzled. But the chief assured him the hut was surrounded by an army in bright white robes holding flaming swords. Have you heard that one? Yeah, there's a there's a whole class of stories, Art, just like that. Um, I think uh, uh, Billy Graham, in, in his... Uh particular book was talking about John G. Payton and the Pacific Ocean's new uh, Hebrides island chain and yes. had a similar experience like that. Um, very often uh, missionaries have reported that they were under duress or, or whatever and that uh, when attacked 
by hostile forces in their in their area. They they received uh, angelic help that was not visible to them, but was, what they found out later was visible to the attackers. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's there's a whole class of stories just like that. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Ronner. Where are you calling from, please? I'm calling from. Oklahoma, and I'm listening to KFH in Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas, all right. Uh, I wanted to tell a story about my mother. She had a premonition or a dream the night before. My uh, grandfather was in a mining accident. His men had gone down and set a charge the day before, and the charge didn't go off, so he went down to check it himself. Well, anyway, in her dream, she dreamed that he was in an explosion and that he was hurt badly. Well, she went to take his lunch to him and begged him to come home, and he wouldn't come home. She told him what, you know, she had dreamed, and he didn't come home. And they went on, she and my grandmother went to Pittsburgh, Kansas, and they had to come find them because he had been blown up in an explosion in the mine. He lost his eyesight, and his body was all blue where the shot went into his body. And uh, he almost died. A little Catholic nun took care of him and kept him alive for six months. But then, when he was 81 years old, she told me I was pregnant with my son and had to go back to Wichita and couldn't stay with her while she was taking care of him at home. And uh, she said... I had a dream that Grandpa was going to die on my birthday, and he died on her birthday. Hmm. It was really a strange experience. I think uh, we're all uh, there's there's evidence that uh, when when tragedy is about to strike, that um, we may be aware on a subconscious level, or there may be a spiritual prompting from the other side about this. However, you want to interpret it, um, the. Uh, parapsychologist at the University of Virginia, Ian Stevenson, did a famous study on uh, uh, coincidences and premonitions surrounding the sinking of the Titanic uh, that became a classic. Uh, very often people seem to uh, be aware through dreams or through hunches that something is about to happen. Uh, W.E. Cox, uh, a researcher in the 1950s, conducted a study of railroad accidents, and he discovered that there was a statistically significant drop-off in ridership on trains that were doomed to crash on the days that they actually did crash. And there was a further drop-off in ridership in the cars that suffered the worst damage. Uh, he called this phenomenon accident avoidance, and his theory was that people were aware subconsciously that the accident was about to occur, and probably in most cases, without any conscious knowledge, they simply stayed away. Uh, maybe they lingered over breakfast a little bit longer and were late, sure. uh, like the members of the uh, West Side Baptist Church that we talked about earlier. I think in most cases... Uh, um, when we uh, when we experience something like this, it, it often does occur subconsciously. Let me ask you for a second about the dark side. We talk about um, near death. We talk about angelic appearances. Yeah. But there is a dark side, John. There are people publishing books uh, relating uh, stories told with a, a, a much more hesitantly about going to hell. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a lot of criticism, Art, you know, of the near-death experience uh, some years back. It became kind of all the rage. You, you might have even treated the, the subject on your own program. The, the, the criticism was, well, the near-death experience is just too warm and fuzzy. Everybody's having a wonderful time. You know, yeah. isn't, yep. anybody, <laughs> isn't anybody having a bad time in the afterlife? And, and uh, there was a lot of examination about that issue in, in different programs. So, uh, I, think, I think what has happened, it, well, first of all, let me say this. What's so bad? about the overwhelming or, or the great majority of, of average people who are neither Al Capone or Mother Teresa having a rather pleasant time of it in the afterlife. If we, oh, live, in a, if we live in the same universe, wouldn't you expect that? I no, mean, nothing's uh, wrong with that, John. No, I'm, 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 and, I'm and very encouraged the, by it. Uh, my, uh, but, you know, the other may be there. Sure, yeah, and I was coming to that. There, uh, Nevertheless, there is some justification in raising the point. Uh, doesn't anybody have a negative experience? And the answer is yes. Um, I think what's what's been happening is that in the early stages of near-death investigation, most of the people who were being interviewed were rather typical average people, you know, as I said, neither saints nor horrible sinners. Mm. Uh, now, upon closer examination, we find that people who are above average wrongdoers very often do report uh, rather negative experiences. Uh, 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 Jack London told the story of a a gentleman who was in uh, uh, solitary confinement in San Quentin and had a metaphysical out-of-body experience and near-death experience during during that time, and in which he experienced the life review that we talked about earlier in the program, saw all the tiny actions of his life. And as, as you alluded to earlier in the program, he was aware of all the negative consequences, and it was a painful experience for him. Uh, uh, I can just imagine what it would be like if, I were, if you were, say, Saddam Hussein, who had started the Gulf War and cost 100,000 Iraqis their lives. We're not talking about the injured now, we're just talking about all killed people who were buried alive in those berms when the you know when the when uh, Schwarzkopf's uh, tanks yes. went over there and you know yes, remember that yes, remember that well. we read in the paper about how they they just they roll over these these barricades and just bury these guys alive. They did yes. And to be Saddam Hussein, I'm this is just speculation. And you're having a life review, and suddenly you are aware on an intimate, empathetic level of every tiny bit of suffering that you have caused to everybody, and you're seeing it, you're feeling it from their heart. That would be quite a hellish experience. As a matter of fact, uh, near-death experiencers uh, uh, going through the uh, tunnel phase, you know, first you have the out-of-body phase, then they tunnel through this dark passageway on their way to the world of light. Right. Sometimes they have reported kind of looking to the side of the tunnel, so to speak, and seeing a drab a gray zone around the earth, uh, people with numberless spirits kind of shuffling around, looking sad, weighted down, burdened, uh, almost as if everybody's, each person has his own problem. Uh, some people shell-shocked by a violent death and not realizing they're dead. Others uh, running addictions that they ran in, in physical life and never dealt with, and uh, maybe uh, uh, hang, alcoholics hanging around a bar trying to vicariously get the pleasure of, of the alcohol and so on. Uh, there was, I remember in particular one instance where a lady who had a near-death experience uh, noticed in this gray zone on her way to the light, she noticed a, 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 business, a young businessman kind of walking down the street, and he was in the flesh, you know, alive. Right. And hovering over him was the specter of a gray-haired woman who was waving her finger in his face as if trying to lecture him or tell him what to do. And, and the near-death experiencer said that she felt, she got the impression that that lady, that spirit, was his mother still trying to tell it, still trying to boss him around uh, in death as she had in life, and was unable to let go of that. Of course, in spiritualism, there's a long tradition uh, of belief in the idea that 
that one minute after death, we're very much the same as we are one minute before death, and that is to say we take all of our, our virtues with us and also all of our baggage. And if we have enough baggage, too much baggage, we, we, we according to this theory, and if that's all it is, it's a theory, we remain earthbound, unable to ascend, unable to get to the light. So if you, if you look a little bit deeper, not all the near-death experiences are warm and fuzzy. All right, John. Good. Uh, hold, hold it right there. We'll be right back to John Ronner. Um, I always imagined that. If you, if you can imagine the good, you've got to imagine the other. And if one exists, it seems to me it, it argues for the existence of the other. And we'll be right back. Mr. Three, back now to John Ronner. John, are you there? I'm here. All right. A lot of phone calls, so let's keep going. <clears throat> East of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Ronner. Hi, where are you calling from? Please? I'm calling from San Francisco, California. Uh, you're on the wrong line. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so that's quite all right. Now we'll go west of the Rockies. Uh, you're on the air with John Ronner. Hi. Hi, Art. Uh, you got the Washingtonian Druid up here in this uh, KONA country. Yes, sir. Tri-Cities, I believe. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I just wanted to call uh, call you up there and, uh, and uh, kind of warn uh, all your listeners about this type of stuff. Um, um, there are a lot of uh, evil angels out there. And uh, sometimes they like to cause a little bit of mischief now and then. Um, had some experiences uh, um, beforehand with this type of thing. Um, um, so uh, uh, you kind of want to watch out because uh, uh, they do tend to cause a little havoc. Now. Well, all right. Uh, that's a good point. I remember the old Disney movies where you got the good little guy over here and the bad little guy over here. John, are there any cases you could document of the bad little guy leading people into a disaster instead of the other way around? Well, I, 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 I can't think of anything right off the top of my head, but the thought that I did have about what the caller was saying is the, the, the principle here is is to watch out, be careful that, uh, you know, not all spirits are benevolent. And I've, I've thought of the New Testament principle of discerning the spirits, the idea that, uh, that you, should, you, uh, you should test uh, the validity of the advice you're getting, the validity of the experience itself, and if uh, uh, I think Ignatius of Loyola, the uh, uh, the great theologian from the 1600s, the founder of the Jesuits, uh, actually elaborated a system for discerning the the spirits uh, or testing whether the experience is bona fide or not. Uh, the idea was, first, I think, one of the major points was to to see what effects the experience is having on you. Uh, are you becoming um, are you becoming more spiritual or less so? Is life becoming easier and more clarified for you or more confusing and more negative? These, right. are, some of the th these are some of the issues that crop up. Huh. All right. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air. Where are you calling from, please? Albuquerque, George. Again? Uh, again. Oh, you're only allowed to call one time per show, sir. Uh, two years ago. Oh, you mean you haven't called in two years? Right. Oh, well, that's not... Ex <laughs> What's on your mind, George? I expect you to remember. Hey, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking, you two gentlemen could conduct a grand experiment. Tart Bell, you have a, a tremendous audience, and if you could ask them all to meditate on uh, an improvement of a certain kind that could be verifiable, and Mr. Parr could, could uh, help you with that, John Ronner. Um, yeah. All right, he's, he's talking about an experiment. Have you ever thought of doing that, John? I, I've done that. Uh, for example, I have taken uh, a little object, I forgot, I think it was a pen, and balanced it on my table, knowing I've got millions of people out there. And I said, come on, everybody, let's push this pen over. 
stupid pen sat right there. <laughs> is, pri is it like that with angels? I mean, uh... well, first of all, uh, uh, we were talking about the whether an experiment has been performed, and you you could say that an experiment of sorts is, of, of that ilk is already underway, and that's the the mass meditation that generally occurs around the Christmas season every year for world peace and world stability. Yes. Some people have argued that the uh, the gradual uh, um, uh, raising of spiritual consciousness on the part of, of politicians and the the the, the peace that seems to to be breaking out all over the world. Although you know some will take issue with me, they'll point to Bosnia and so on. But but I'm talking about things like the fall of communism, the uh, the formation of the United Nations coalition to police Iraq and so on. Uh, peace really is breaking out in a lot of countries. And if you follow the international news, for example, Angola just recently ended a long-standing war. Uh, some people have said that that all of this meditation is having a subtle effect on the politicians and just on the planet at large. Um, I suppose it would be bad karma to uh, try and get together and meditate on causing a blood vessel to break in Saddam's head, eh? <laughs> yeah, and that gets back to that, that you just jogged the, the, me on the original point of this whole thing. Uh, the idea that I wanted to point out that angels um, generally are not believed to be capable of manipulation. They're superior beings, so you would not be able to, uh, you know, force angels to do anything. That's That's been the most common belief, of course. I'm sure that, as with everything else in metaphysics, there's no unanimity of, of belief. So it's but kind of, it's kind uh, of but like I there. guess I do think it would be bad karma. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like sitting there and uh, demanding of God that he supply immediate proof of his existence to you or you're uh, going to stop believing. Oh, sure. And and I think that... Uh, uh, I think that a lot of the uh, the mystery and the and, and the uh, challenge of life would be removed. One of the one of the things that I, I you know we didn't touch on this earlier when we were this why you asked the question why do angels go on vacation and one point that I didn't make was that a lot of people argue that our existence here is a great adventure and if any time you're going to have a great adventure uh, things have to go wrong if the, if, if every time you right. did a show you had a hundred percent rating whether it was a great show or a, a middling exactly show or a bad show you'd be bored stiff after a few that, days. That's true, John. Uh, we'll be right back with whatever it w is we've got going right now and it's good stay right there very angry with a particular angel for taking her brother away from her I looked the angels name up in the dictionary and it was the angel of death I can't remember the name now. Prior to the accident, my husband was blinded by a ball of bright light. Our explanation is the sun, because he cannot justify anything else. I know better. My son's greatest gift to, to me, the many people he knew in the family, is the absolute knowledge that death here is not the end, but just the beginning of something else. I hope it helps other parents whose children have left at a young age. Look for the meaning and purpose for that child's life and look at all the people affected by their short existence. It does help, but the pain never goes away. That's Deborah in Seattle. John, you're back on. Yes, that was uh, quite a story. In the, uh, in the accident, I was unclear about whether anybody else was hurt when the son was killed. Well, they don't say the extent of the, um, the injuries of the sister. Um, she apparently was okay, I guess, because she was by the bedside of the brother for several days. Yeah, I'm L not. I'm listen, not... John, before you get started, yeah. sure. Um, uh, you haven't done it, so I'm going to make you do it. Um, 
Look, I've already had, I've got a fistful of faxes here of stories like these. I've got enough stories just from the show we've done tonight. You could write another book. <laughs> now, uh, if people want to contact you and give you stories, or people want to contact you and get your books, I mean, this is the time when you can give out your info, so give it out. Well, what I'd like to do is, first of all, give a give an address where they can write me if they if they would like to. They can write me care of Mamre Press, M-A-M-R-E-P-R-E-S-S, and that's at Post Office Box 3137, and that's in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and that's M-U-R-F-R-E-E-S-B-O-R-O, and the zip is 37130. So that's 3137. Dash three seven one three zero. As far as uh, um, one one other thing, I'd like to do is, is just point out that I'll be speaking at a couple of places. Uh, on August sixth, I'll be speaking at the Unity Church in Franklin, North Carolina. Uh, on October twenty eighth, I'll be speaking at an angel conference in in Maryland. And uh, for information about that, they can call uh, Greenlee Associates at three zero one two seven zero two one eight five. Uh, on November 30th, I'll be speaking at the Unity Church on Hillcroft in Houston. Uh, on April 22nd next year, I'll be speaking at a meeting of the Canton Metaphysical Society. And on July 23rd of 96, I'll be at a conference at Lilydale, New York. Uh, uh, All right, you don't have a fax number you'd like to give out, do you? No, I don't. Uh, if, if they're interested in, in, in uh, writing care of the publisher, that's probably the best approach. All right. Um, the books themselves are probably pretty widely available. They, they've been in the chains for years. Uh, Do You Have a Guardian Angel is the original book. That's the old favorite. It's, it talks about many of the things we've covered in this program. Um, I wrote that way that? back in... You can get that in most major bookstores uh, and many of the minor ones. It's it's had it's been a bestseller for some years and it's got pretty widespread distribution. And uh, I wrote that one first back in '85 when I was a young reporter and I wanted to uh, uh, I wanted to do a journalistic treatment of the subject of angels because many of the books were kind of strident religious tracts. So yes. forcefully putting forth this author's viewpoint of that, and I thought, gee, it would be nice to rise above the fray and just provide uh, journalistic objective information to the to the extent I could. I'm sure many criticize you for that, don't they? Well, it's uh, it's I, I, I think I, I'm sort of immune to all of that. I, I, <laughs> I <laughs> I've talked to all kinds of groups, everybody under the sun, all you know, all the way from from the mainline denominations. Uh, uh, and to spiritualists and so on. And I think the one thing that immunizes me from criticism is that I don't try to tell people what to think. I, I want the people to do their own thinking. It's the one thing I wanted to get away from when I wrote Do You Have a Guardian Angel in the first place. If this was going to be a book that didn't tell people what they had to believe. And in fact, the, the, uh, the title itself, Do You Have a Guardian Angel, is a question. It's not a flat statement ordering you to believe in angels. And then the next book, uh, Know Your Angels, The Angel Almanac, came out in 93, and that's like a mini encyclopedia of the subject and the newest one the angels of cokeville uh i've i've encapsulated a few of those stories tonight that is a, a collection of what i consider to be the outstanding angel encounter stories that i have ever run across in the last 10 years of talking to hundreds of people about it excellent all right back to the phones east of the rockies you're on the air with john ronner where are you calling from please el paso and i got a low battery on my south el paso texas all right Kind of in between the Rockies. Anyway, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've heard. I, I think I heard you mention it once, once before. But there, that light theory at the end of the tunnel. Yes. Yeah. It's a trick, according to people. It's true, sir. Thank you. Uh, let me relate this, John. 
an old friend of mine who is a UFO buff, uh, almost the granddaddy of UFO uh, investigation in this country, John Lear, the son of Bill Lear, who, you know, the Lear jet guy, uh-huh. um, once said that it had been said to him, and he passed on to me, and it has driven me crazy ever since. He said, don't go to the light. It's a trick. Go to the darkness. I have never been bothered so much by a statement in all my life. <laughs> you know, it seems so easy. Light is good. Um, darkness is bad. Yeah. It's a trick. Go to the darkness. Any well, comments? Well, the, the, some people out there have misgivings about the being of light. They feel like it's the devil in disguise tricking them. Um, and there is uh, there's some mentionings. I think a lot of this comes from uh, some of the New Testament writers mentioned that uh, I think Perhaps it was Paul, certainly one of the New Testament writers, mentioned that the devil can disguise himself as an angel of light, and I think that's caused a lot of fear and trepidation out there. But i also like to point out that one of the most famous appearances of a being of light in the history of our Christian culture was the appearance of a being of light to Paul of Tarsus, the number two man in Christianity, when he was on the road to Damascus to persecute the Christian community there. Uh, he was you know, knocked off his mule, blinded for three days, according to the book of Acts, and later interpreted the experience as being uh, Jesus uh, after, the, after his death, appearing to him and asking him why he was persecuting him. So, so I think we come back to what we were saying earlier, and that is... Um, it's just a matter of, of using spiritual discernment, not accepting every metaphysical experience that comes down the pike, but uh, uh, being selective and, and gauging it by the effect that it has on you. All what right. kind of direction does it put you in? First time caller line, you're on the air with John Ronner. Hi. Hello. Hello. All right, let me turn my radio off. Turn it off. That's good. Do that right away. Where are you calling from? Just a second. I'm going to reach around the corner and get the radio. All right. There, it's off. All right. Where are you, sir? I'm in Florence, Oregon. All right. I hear you out of Portland. Okay. Uh, I don't know where to start. I believe in guardian angels because I've had one. On, uh, my family's had one for years. Uh, whether I have it now or not, I don't know. My wife died in October, and it may have been her guardian angel. Uh, anyway, uh, I got my job through the guardian angel uh, the guardian angel told my wife where to look for the job, and I got my job. When I retired out of the service, I got my house through a guardian angel. Hmm. Uh, my son passed away with muscular dystrophy in 89, and the day he died, he told my wife that he had somebody holding his left hand. And my wife said, there's nobody there. She said, but there's somebody holding my hand, Mom. And uh, apparently there was, you know, because he died that night. And... Uh, but there was many cases in my family where uh, the guardian angel uh, helped us. Never got us uh, the greatest things, but always kept us right on the verge of disaster. You know what I mean? Yes, uh, thank you. John, it begs a good question, and that is, he said he thought the guardian angel might have been his wife's. Now, does it seem true to you, John, that guardian angels follow one particular person uh, versus another and then when that person is gone and then so is the guardian angel would that well the uh, the most common belief art is that each of us gets a guardian angel this is this is just the most common belief in in the uh, uh, in in our culture 
has been that each of us gets a guardian angel at birth. That angel stays with us until death, at which time there's a separation. Most of the medieval theologians uh, accepted that particular idea. It doesn't make it right. Uh, and that uh, everybody gets a guardian angel. It doesn't make any difference, you know, how, whether, you know, if you're Joseph Stalin or if you're uh, Albert Schweitzer, you're well, still going to get one. Well, okay, now, so then would you say some of them are lazy? Some of them are no-count guardian angels versus uh, ones that will stop trucks and stop accidents. In other words, this goes back to the uh, what happened to the other angels, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I would say that, that uh, most of the things that we talked about would apply here. Um, and, and here again, I, I keep coming up with, with other little ideas, one of which that we didn't mention earlier is that some, some people uh, come into this world more, just better wired to interface with other realities than the rest of us, and they may be, they may be picking up signals that, that some of the rest of us can't pick up. It may be that the other side is trying to get through, uh, but just can't with some of us and can with others. Uh, one thing that, that uh, the gentleman from Florence brought up that I'd like to address real quick, I know time's running short. He talked about how his son had died in 89 with uh, MS, Yes. and the day he died, he, he was talking about how he felt someone had someone was there with him holding his hand right one thing that we haven't touched on in this discussion is the is the deathbed vision the idea that uh, uh, there's a there's a genuine medical phenomenon that in the in their dying moments uh, dying patients will suddenly perk up and begin oftentimes speaking in an animated way with somebody in the in the room with them that nobody else can see that's right uh, and by listening you know it's, it's an incredibly startling experience for, for the onlookers and for those who listen to the to one half of the conversation because they can only hear the the dying patient talk it becomes clear that the, the patient feels that someone is there in the room with them to to escort them into the beyond, that to to take them uh, at the moment of death and and lead them on. Sometimes it can be a, an, an angel that they may be dis feeling that they are with. It may be a departed loved one who is there. Uh, uh, to give you an example of that, James Moore, the famous tenor, was was on his deathbed dying, and all of a sudden he perked up. And he said uh, very excitedly, "Mother, what are you doing here?" His mother had been dead for decades, oh and then he went on to say, "Oh, wait a minute." You're not coming to. I'm not. You're not coming to me. I'm coming to you. Well, wait, mother. Hold on. I'm. Al I'm almost over. I can jump it. Wait. And then a few moments later, he slumped and he died. Uh, John, I'll hold that thought. Um, you know, everybody, when you listen to this, and I hope that you do listen to it. And this is why we do these kinds of programs. You need not automatically believe, but one would hope that you would be open-minded enough to listen and to uh, allow it to enter your brain and rattle around with everything else you've heard. Angels? Huh. Silly? I don't think so. I hope you're listening carefully. We'll be right back. North American trading has done a very wise thing. You see, not very long ago, we interviewed Steve Jurich, who is an investment analyst with North American Trading of Scottsdale, Arizona. We talked about every aspect of the economy. We talked about newsletter carries an unconditional money-back guarantee from the publishers. Again, that's 1-800-830-9830. All right, uh, back to the phones. Um, John, we've got very little time, but east of the Rockies, here's somebody in El Paso, Texas. Hello there. Hi. You're on the air, sir. Okay, thanks. Uh, John. Yes. Yes, uh, uh, um, I was listening to your theories about this, about spirit, and uh, I had a friend of mine in California tell me that... Uh, 
He's into radionics. I don't know if you know what that, what that is. Well, I've heard of it, but I've, you'll have to explain it because I can't pull it off the top of my head. Well, radionics is uh, uh, where disembodied spirits will uh, in, um, uh, come back into your aura, your magnetic field. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we just lost oh, the shoot, caller. We lost him, yeah. Um, all right, well, uh, let's try and take one more. West of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Ronner. Hello. Oh, I am, yes. Uh, here in San Francisco, there's a church... Uh, and, All right, turn your radio off, sir. It, it is, I got it off. I just turned it off. Okay. Okay. Angelic things happen there. Uh, free evangelical church near 14th and Valencia. Have you heard of it? You're saying angelic yes. things are happening at an evangelical church in San Francisco, right? Yes. There's okay. been healings. Uh, Actually, yes, I've heard of that. I, I really have heard the rumors. Um uh, how long has it been going on? Oh, it's been going on at least 10, 10 or 12 years. All right. Well, uh, that begs a question. John, um, do angelic things tend to happen around churches, or is the incidence of angelic assistance simply widespread? I would say this, Art. I'd say angelic things tend to happen where the belief in them is strongest, and that the belief is an energy that facilitates uh, the, these things. Uh, lack of belief is uh, is denying an energy, and, and ten, you know whatever we whatever we put our belief and our attention into tends to expand in our lives, and whatever we withdraw our attention or our belief from tends to contract from our lives. And this is one reason why I think we have such adamant skeptics out there in their universe, in the universe that they have created for themselves with their skeptical consciousness. There are no healings. There are no miracles. So, in other there, words, those there are who, no visitations. Those right. who say it's a bunch of baloney are liable to experience that reality uh, for them. If It'll... they begin to open their minds, I think it will start coming into their lives. And but as long as their minds are closed, I think it will stay away from them. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Maybe one more. First time caller line. You're on the air with John Ronner. Art. Hi. This is. Uh... Sanaka in Norman, Oklahoma. I'm really glad to get through to you. I'll know you've been running short on time, and I'll try and be as quick as I can. I'd like to, if I can hang on, I'd like to give you my phone number because I've been monitoring your show for about a year uh, here. I'm a college student. I'm 22 and having a really good time living life, uh, enjoying the quickening. I very much agree with your, your description of it in that term. Uh, recently, I underwent a most profound spiritual awakening within my own self after much dedication and hard work and much pain and much suffering mind you as a child i experienced much conflict over the apparent contradiction in in good angels and bad angels and heaven and hell and eternity and what it all meant all right well we're way short on time do you have a question i wanted to ask you what you or your guests knew about the new star uh john New well, star? I'll have to ask you about that, Sanaka. Could you inform me? There's a there is one new star. The only mention I've heard of it so far has been on the G. Liddy program, and all he did was read the 25 word or less AP wire, which uh, said, uh, you know, basically there was a new star. It took 18.5 million years or something like that for us to see it. All right, well, on. Are you talking about like a? You're not talking about a nova. John, 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 we're out of time. Okay. We're out of time. I mean, that really is it. We've got to go. John, All right. it has been an absolute pleasure having you here. John, we will have you back again. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. John Ronner, 
on Angels. Good night. And thank you all very much. I'm sorry, there is never enough time. Don't forget our bulletin board service number, area code 702-727-1709. To get a tape of this program or any other, call 1-800-917-4278. From the high desert, good night. This has been Dreamland, a program dedicated to an examination of areas in the human experience not easily nor neatly put in a box. Things seen at the edge of vision, awakening a part of the mind as yet not mapped. Yet things every bit as real as the air we breathe but don't see. Please join us again next week at this time for Dreamland.